Being born in 1972 means only one thing, that in 1977, a few weeks after I turned five years old, the very first Star Wars movie came out, and I had to see it. It was my destiny. And I still remember waiting in line at the movie theater to see it. I still remember being scared to death the first time I saw Darth Vader emerge through all of that smoke down that hallway surrounded by stormtroopers. I still remember being confused when Obi-Wan Kenobi was struck down by Darth Vader's lightsaber and then his body just disappeared. I still remember thinking, how can that many stormtroopers miss that many shots? And there's an answer for that. You can see Pastor James about that. He has an answer for that. I still remember that feeling when I saw Darth Vader's TIE fighter spinning out into space, thinking, yes, I mean, the bad guy is gone. Little did I know that Empire, the Empire Strikes Back would come out three years later and he would not be gone. I still remember seeing Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star. But it was the royal award ceremony at the very end That got me. Seeing Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca walk down that long row of people to get their medals, to me, was the greatest ending to a movie. Now, Chewbacca never got a medal, and that always bothered me, but that's a whole other conversation. But when they were honored at that ceremony, I felt like I won. I felt like I was a part of defeating Darth Vader. I felt like I was receiving the medal. And part of that is due to the fact that the score, the music written by John Williams just added to that feeling of pride that the good guys won. It was everything that a five-year-old boy could want in a movie ending. The good guys won. Darth Vader was gone. And the musical score just reinforced that feeling. Well, someone recently put the ending of Star Wars up on YouTube, but they took out the score written by John Williams. So there's no music as Luke and Han and Chewbacca walk up to receive their rewards. There's no music. And it's so awkward. You hear people in the crowd coughing. You hear their footsteps as they're walking. And if you know the scene, Chewbacca lets out several of his growls There we go. But it's so weird because it's so quiet. You know what? Let's just watch it because I want you to see how awkward this great moment is without the musical score of John Williams. And if you're not a Star Wars fan, we probably can't be friends. And that might be an issue of church discipline. I'm not sure. I'll need to check with the... Check with the elders. But if you're not a fan of Star Wars, understand that in this clip, this is not Chewbacca's normal growl. The people that made the video kind of substituted in this little screen. But ladies and gentlemen, I give you a very awkward Star Wars Royal Award ceremony.
Now, wasn't that awkward? You take away the beautiful score written by John Williams, and it makes the royal award ceremony scene so awkward. I show you that for a reason because I want you to remember that, and I want you to think about this. What is it going to be like to stand before the throne of Almighty God on the last day? What will the royal award ceremony in heaven be like? Will it be awkward? Will there be a movie of our lives played for all the world to see? With all of our sin seen by the entire world? Will it be a time of fear and trembling? Those questions get answered in our passage today. And the good news that the preacher of Hebrews will remind us about today is that Jesus is not going to bring up our sins when we see him face to face on that day. Jesus is not going to drag a net through the sea of forgetfulness. And the reason why Jesus won't be bringing up your sins on that day is because Jesus can't remember your sins. That, my friends, is good news. Jesus offered himself up once for all, one time to deal with and to wipe away the memory of our sins forever. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the preacher of Hebrews continues his contrast with the old and new covenants. And he has in mind here the day of atonement. The day of atonement, Yom Kippur, under the old covenant, was when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would go in only one time per year with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, to place it on the the mercy seat, the covering to the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the nation. And so the preacher of Hebrews contrasts the sacrifice that Jesus made with the one that the high priest would make on the Day of Atonement. He tells us that Jesus appeared to put away our sins once for all by the sacrifice of himself. That's why Jesus is better. That's why the new covenant is better. Is that Jesus doesn't bring a sacrifice once a year, but once for all. And in keeping with that idea of something happening once, the preacher tells us that it is appointed to all human beings that we will die once. We die and then this life as we know it is over. We die because of Adam's sin, because we're born sinners in union with Adam. We die because of our own sin, because we have broken God's laws. And then what comes after death? Judgment. 
Judgment awaits every single human being born into this world when they die, believers and unbelievers. But there's a difference between what happens at judgment for the unbeliever and for the believer. Let's talk about each one. For the unbeliever, the final judgment is one of terror and being exposed. Every unbeliever will stand before God and be exposed as sinners, as rebels who have broken God's holy law. It will be a time of fear and sadness for them. But please understand this about the final judgment. The final judgment is not primarily about striking fear in the the unbeliever. Rather, The final judgment is primarily the occasion where God publicly and definitively demonstrates his love for his elect people. It's primarily about his people being vindicated publicly and God being glorified. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the final judgment will strike fear and terror in every unbeliever as they stand before their judge, Jesus. And if you think Judge Judy is tough, and that she strikes fear in people as she renders her judgments, and as she sees through all of the baloney, wait until you see Judge Jesus at the final judgment. Unbelievers will finally be convinced of their guilt And they will be tried according to God's standard of righteousness, his holy law. They will remember their sins. They will remember their sins when their hearts are exposed. And their sins, which are brought up at judgment, will prove publicly that God's sentence of judgment on them is righteous and just. They will be shown how they have offended God by breaking his law and by trampling his glory under their feet. And so for the unbeliever, their sins will be remembered and brought up at the last judgment. A movie of their life, if you will, will be played and they will see it publicly and they will be convinced of their guilt. But what about believers? What will it look like for us who are in union with Christ when Jesus returns? Will it be awkward when we see him? Will it be a time of fear and trembling? What will it be like? The preacher of Hebrews wants you and I to know one thing about that day. Jesus is not bringing up our sins when we see him. Look again at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is not dealing with our sins when he returns. Y'all should have let out a yell or an amen or even a Chewbacca growl would be appropriate at that. Let me say it again. Jesus is not dealing with our sins when he returns. Why? Why is Jesus not dealing with our sins when he returns? Because Jesus can't remember your sins. 
Of course, Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus, you could pick any day of your life that you wanted, and Jesus could tell you exactly how many times you sinned on any given day of your life. So he, he knows your sins. But if you are in union with Christ, God dealt with your sins at the cross. Jesus offered himself up once for all, for all of your sins. God dealt with your sin at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. When you believed and you repented of your sins, you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. When you believed, when you trusted in Jesus and you repented of your sins, when you were justified by faith, that was God's final judgment on your sin justification, being declared righteous by God, that is his final judgment on your sin, Christian. And that happens because you are crucified with Christ because you are in union with him. And that's why Paul says what he says in Romans 8, verses 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. There can be no charge brought against us. We cannot be condemned for our sins because Jesus died, and when he died, we died with him. And so when Jesus returns, he's not coming to deal with our sins. He comes to save us, to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Tell me, would you eagerly be awaiting Jesus if he was going to talk about your sins when you saw him face to face, I wouldn't. I'd want to hide from him. I would not be eagerly awaiting him if he said, when I show up, you and I are talking about everything that you've ever done wrong. I want to run. I want to hide. When he returns, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we will be changed in an instant. The dead in Christ will come out of their graves in resurrection. And those who are alive will be changed and given glorified bodies instantly. We will experience resurrection and glorification in an instant. And even our resurrected, glorified bodies will be proof of our justification, proof that we've been declared righteous. When we experience regeneration and we are saved, we are justified by faith in that moment. And when Jesus returns and we are resurrected and glorified, that will be proof Again, that we are justified. We will be justified by sight in that moment. So believers who are in union with Christ will appear at the final judgment with resurrected, glorified bodies. And if we appear there already resurrected bodily, already with resurrected, glorified bodies as we stand before God, then we will appear there as people who have already openly and publicly been justified. So when Jesus returns, which I think can happen at any moment, we will be resurrected with glorified bodies. We'll meet him in the air, and then all of humanity will be judged, and believers will be vindicated on that day. And so as believers, we are justified by faith 
when we believe, but on the last day, we will be justified by sight. Maybe this chart will help you. There's, there's double justification. Justification by faith. This resurrection of the inner man. The inner man being made alive. Being declared innocent of the penalty of sin. But there will be justification by sight. We'll see it with our own eyes. The resurrection of the outer man. The body will be delivered from the penalty of sin forever. Vindicated from the world's wrong verdict of us. So we are justified by faith when we are born again. Our inner man is resurrected, made alive. We're declared righteous. We're declared innocent of the penalty of sin. But at the final judgment, we'll be justified by sight. As the hymn states, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. We'll be resurrected physically. Our physical resurrection will be proof that we were justified by faith, but also proof that we will be justified by sight. And we will be delivered from sin and vindicated in the sight of the whole world. Understand this, Grace. We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Let that sink in for a moment. We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. And that's why Jesus isn't bringing up our sins at the final judgment. We will be there at the final judgment. We will be included in the final judgment. But Jesus is not bringing up our sins. What will happen is that we will be publicly vindicated. We will hear the words, not guilty. We will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We will be acquitted at the final judgment. And so acquittal, our acquittal lies at the heart of justification. So there's this positive side to the final judgment for believers. There's a positive side to the final judgment for believers, which is why Paul says this in Romans 2, verse 16. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice the word gospel there. Gospel means good news. If your sins are being brought up by Jesus on the last day as he's judging the secrets of your heart, then that's not good news, is it? God will judge all men and their hearts will be laid bare. But for the Christian, it will be a day of good news. It will be good news because Jesus is not playing a movie of our lives for the whole world to see. The sins of the ungodly, however, will be remembered afresh, but not ours. Believers will be comforted on that day because we will see Jesus, our great, merciful, and faithful high priest. In other words, the judge is our friend. The judge is our brother. The judge is the one who died for our sins. So it will not be a terrifying experience for us, but rather a rewarding one, a day full of joy and celebration. It's going to be a party. We will see the wrath that we are spared from, and that will only deepen and increase our happiness in God. And cause us to love him and enjoy him even more. So we will not be judged according to our sins because God took care of that at the cross. 
We were judged for our sins at the cross, but we will be judged according to our works, as many passages in Scripture affirm. But that raises a question, doesn't it? If Jesus is the basis for our justification, what role do our works play in the final judgment? What about the good works that we do? Well, here's the answer. Our good works that we do in God's name and for his glory, they will be judged, but not our sins. John Calvin said this, Therefore, as we ourselves, when we have been engrafted in Christ, are righteous in God's sight, because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness, so our works are righteous and are thus regarded, because whatever fault is otherwise in them is buried in Christ's purity and is not charged to our account. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves, but our works as well are justified. So if there's any fault in our good works, any sin, sinful motives, they get buried in Christ's purity, and they're not charged to our account, and therefore God can reward us. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 16 on good works is, is very helpful here. It says, believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So the point is that we're in union with Christ. There's a lot of imperfections and weaknesses in our good works, a lot of sinful motives that come into play in how we serve the Lord. So our works haven't been wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight. Rather, because we're in union with Christ, God looks upon our sin-stained good works in his Son. In other words, God rewards our good works not because they're exclusively good, because they are not. And God doesn't reward our good works because they deserve to be rewarded, because they don't. And the reason why is because there are traces of sin in self in all of our good works. In all of our good works, there's traces of sin in self. The problem is we just don't know it sometimes. There's a famous uh, megachurch pastor who said he walked into the sanctuary on a Monday morning and, and saw all the, the flyers and the worship bulletins scattered around. He thought, you know, I'm coming through here. I'm just going to pick these up. Nobody's going to see me. I'm just going to do this thing for your glory. He started making his way through there, picking them up. And then the thought occurred to him, what if somebody comes in here and sees me picking these up? I, I'm a famous Pastor and preacher and author. People know me. I'm the pastor of a megachurch. What will they think if I start? So you see how, how it comes in? Sin and self comes in even when we want to serve God and serve for his glory. There are traces of sin and self in all of our good works. And so our good works, when compared to God's holy standard in his law, they merit nothing. So God enables us to do good works by his grace, and therefore his grace is magnified when he rewards us for our works. And so Jesus gets the glory when he saves us by his grace, and then he gets the glory when he rewards us because all of our good works were done by his grace. 
For God to reward any of our sin-stained works is quite simply a testimony to his grace. And it's all because of Jesus. Because God looks upon them in his son. Let's continue into chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the preacher is again showing the weakness of the old covenant because sacrifices were offered day after day, year after year, precisely because they could not make sinners perfect. If the old covenant sacrificial system could truly cleanse the conscience and truly remove and forgive sin, then the sacrifices would have stopped. It would have worked. But those sacrifices couldn't. They had to be offered continually, and they served to remind the people of their sins. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. And that's why Jesus is better, and that's why he came, to deal with sin once for all. Let's continue in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the preacher quotes Psalm 40 here, and he applies it to Jesus. He's not saying that God did not require sacrifices under the old covenant, because as we've seen so far in Hebrews, we know that God did. God mercifully made a way possible for sinners to be declared clean so that they could come and enjoy God and worship him through the old covenant sacrificial system, as it was described in the law. So what David is saying in Psalm 40 and what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 10 is that Jesus said these words in the incarnation. They were pointing towards Jesus when David wrote them. And Jesus said these words in the incarnation. Jesus knew that what God wanted was not a bunch of sacrifices and offerings. What God wanted was complete obedience to his law. A human being, the God-man, to come and fully obey the law. What God requires of all of us is complete obedience to his law. And that's Jesus' point. When he says, sacrifices you didn't desire, I came to do your will. So what basically Jesus is saying in Psalm 40 and in Hebrews 10 is this. I know it isn't sacrifices that you want, Father, so you prepared a body for me. I have come as the God-man to do your will to obey the law for sinners who can't obey it completely. And that's the idea here, and that's why the preacher quotes Psalm 40. 
Jesus came to obey the law, to do God's will for us. And by doing God's will, by obeying the law and never sinning, Jesus does away with the first covenant. He does away with those sacrifices. And it is by his obedient life, his sinless life, that we are justified, declared righteous and blameless, that we are sanctified. It's by his obedient death the offering of his body on the cross for us that we are justified, declared righteous, blameless, and we are sanctified. And so we have been sanctified. We have been set apart. We now belong to God because of Jesus. And in contrast to the old covenant sacrificial system, Jesus has done this once for all. He's done it once for all. Something the preacher of Hebrews will mention one more time. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. As we have seen throughout this series, the old covenant priests never sat down because their job was never done. They had to keep offering sacrifices. But Jesus made one offering himself. And then he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God because he finished what he came to do. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until that time his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. Waiting for the day of judgment. Waiting for the final judgment. And so by one single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We we were sanctified, we were set apart as belonging to God when we were justified, when we were declared righteous. That's sanctification, being set apart, we belong to God. And so now we are declared, we've been declared righteous. We're perfect and blameless in God's eyes right now. We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. But we are also, as the preacher says here, being sanctified. We are slowly being conformed to the image of Jesus. Yes, it's a slow process, right? But transformation is happening. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, conforming us to the image of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives to transform us and to make us more like God's Son. And according to verse 15, the Holy Spirit is also telling us This, Jesus can't remember your sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus can't remember your sins. But we can, can't we? You can remember your sins from yesterday and last week, can't you? We remember our sins. We're good at it. We, who cannot naturally remember the gospel... From day to day, we who are secure in Christ 
We can't remember our sins, but we are secure in the one who has miraculously forgotten our sin for all of eternity. We cannot even remember the gospel. We forget it. We lose sight of it. We need to be reminded of it. We need to rehearse it often. And yet our Savior, Jesus, has miraculously forgotten our sins for all of eternity. Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Jesus doesn't bring up your sins. If you are in union with Christ, Jesus can't remember your sins. And so what does it mean to be in union with Christ? It's kind of like the medal award ceremony at the end of Star Wars. Sinclair Ferguson explains in short what it means to be in union with Christ. He says, it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? It's as if all the medals and honors of Christ have been pinned to your chest and all of heaven stands to salute you. That's how much the union, how real it is, Christian. Believers will stand before Jesus one day and we will receive our rewards and it won't be awkward. The gospel will be the movie soundtrack that we hear. The gospel will be playing in the background. The gospel will be the score that we hear. We won't be watching a movie of our lives we will be watching a movie of the perfect life that Jesus lived for us. So is Jesus bringing up your sins when you stand before him, Christian? No. Thank God, no. Is Jesus playing a movie of your life for all Christians, all the world to see? Thank God, no. What a terrible and awful way to start eternity right? That would be awful. Who wants a movie of their life played for everyone to see? Who wants to have their words, their actions, their thoughts, their motives seen by the whole world on a screen? Not me. As a kid, I was frightened that this was going to happen. I really thought when I stand before God, he's going to show the world everything that I've done. I really thought that was going to happen. There's a scene in the movie Flash Gordon that came out in 1980 where, where Dr. Zarkoff, I think this is his name, they have him in this room and they start playing these scenes from his life on the screen. And as an uh, eight-year-old kid, I saw that and I thought, oh my God, that's what's going to happen when I stand before Jesus. I mean, at eight years old, I knew I've done enough to be embarrassed in my life that I never want to stand before God. I just want to run. I really thought that is what was going to happen. What a terrible way to start eternity. It would be kind of hard to enter into the joy of the Lord after seeing a movie of our lives played for the watching world. Imagine seeing a movie of your life played and then the Lord says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And it's like, where can I hide out for 10,000 years? So the memory of that movie is gone before I can even actually look someone face to face. Even adding a music score would not make that kind of movie good. What an awful way to start eternity. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus can't remember 
your sins. So remember that Jesus can't remember your sins. He's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And you know what? Jesus is eagerly waiting for you. That's the gospel. That Jesus can't wait to take you to be with him forever. Jesus is eagerly waiting for you. Let's close with a few words from one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Goodwin. Speaking of Jesus, Goodwin said this. It is as if he, Jesus, had said, The truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, so that we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. And then continuing, he says, Poor sinners who are full of the thoughts of their own sins, know not how they shall be able at the latter day to look Christ in the face when they shall first meet with him. But they may relieve their spirits against their care and fear by Christ's carriage now towards his disciples who had sinned so much against him. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. And doth he talk thus lovingly of us? Doesn't he talk to us that way, in other words? Whose heart would not this overcome? Jesus can't remember your sin. How can that truth not overcome your heart today, Christian? When Jesus returns, it will be well with your soul. It won't be awkward. It will be glorious. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing about that very thing. Father, the gospel indeed is good news. It is unbelievable good news. I can't believe it, but I believe it. How you are able to deal with us because of your son is amazing. Because we know the sin in our lives, Father. But because of our union with your son, Father, we have been declared righteous by faith. And one day we will see it with our own eyes when we stand resurrected and glorified in your presence. And on that day, like we will today, we will make much of you because it's about your glory, your glory in saving sinners through the work of your son. May we give you great glory today and enjoy you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.